This is Coda Radio, episode 443 for December 6th, 2021. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week like the podcast soldier that he is, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, hello. Hello. you kind of just sliding right into the show today. I hadn't heard from you this morning. I thought, oh, he must be either A, in a meeting, or B, deep into something. I looked over and you were there. You were there. I was like, oh, he's here. You know, it's just been running from thing to thing. Well, let's take a moment, you know, and we'll spend some time together. We'll just pretend like none of that's going on. That's what I like to do. I like to just black it all out. And I noticed to kind of kick things off that you have finally gotten your hands. And I don't know if we've ever talked about the warp terminal on the show before. I feel like we might have mentioned it once before, but it's a rust based terminal that's supposedly going to be on multiple platforms, but is out for the Mac now. You got in on it, and I just kind of want to know what you think, because I've heard people talking about it, and is there really... I guess there is room on the Mac in particular for a better terminal, isn't there? That is something we've complained about before on the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will say this uh, warp terminal, I'm using it as my daily driver for now. It is a lot prettier than uh, terminal.app, and it's just lightning fast. And it's got that command palette, sort of like VS Code, but looks better. Yes, and it's got a bunch of built-in stuff if you use GitHub or some other continuous integration stuff. I've kind of only cracked the surface of it because it's only been about a week, but I am loving it so far, and I'm hopefully going to learn more about some of the more advanced features. The number one feature that uh, you love and that I love is that uh, it's written in Rust. I don't know why that matters, really, when you're using it. It doesn't, but we should Rust all the things. I wanted to mention, because I got in trouble last year that I didn't say on the show, and I almost did it again this year, that the Tuxi votes are open right now. This is a thing we're doing in Linux Unplugged. It's not a coder thing, but I I specifically got yelled at for not mentioning it here, because it's an opportunity for you to vote on the best open source projects and distros of the year, and people wanted to get their vote in. So you go to tuxies.party, it's tuxies.party, and you go in there and you vote for your favorite distros and projects and text editors and all that stuff. And then towards the very end of the year on Linux Unplugged, we announce who the winners are and give out awards, and they get entered into a Hall of Fame and all of that kind of stuff. It's a good time, and the Coda Radio audience deserves their vote, so tuxies.party is where you go get that. And I'm sorry I didn't mention it last year. So you made your position pretty clear on the Web3 stuff. So when we got this email from Sonia into the show, it was pretty clear that Sonia doesn't uh, actually listen. And I should say, we get a lot of pitches for interviews on this show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there are, a lot of them are bad pitches. <laughs> yeah, and a little inside baseball. Doing interviews on the air is kind of a huge pain in the butt. You've done a lot of them for the uh, Mike Dominic show, so you know what a pain it is. And then there's a huge market in like PR firms yep. that try to book people to go on shows to promote their stuff. <sighs> you tell me about it. So Sonia wrote in, she's a PR manager at uh, Decentology. It's an innovative company behind the Hyperverse, Mike, which is an open composable smart contracts marketplace that makes it easy for developers to discover, build and monetize Web3 applications. The hell does that mean? She thought, well, she'd contact us so that way we could talk about it a little bit because you see, their mission is to onboard the next 10 million developers to Web3. Mm. So they're willing to provide equal opportunities and knowledge to anyone interested in entering the field. They're going to have a hackathon initiative. 
which they call the hyper hack. She actually says this on here. Even Web2 developers will be welcome. She wanted to reach out there on the show and uh, she loves it. You know, she loves the show. She loves uh, she loves our stance on uh, Web3 and she wants to uh, promote her Web3 company. I don't think Sonya listens, Mike. I don't uh, <laughs> I don't know why this one tickled me because we get so many variations of this. But yeah, I didn't even see this one. I must have my Darth Maul filter must have just been like, no, <laughs> sorry. All right. So listener Michael wrote in and he did kind of have a pragmatic take on the crypto blockchain hype. And he writes, as a daily pragmatist, I do get annoyed with the next big thinkers spouting new ideas that will revolutionize all the things. But it doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong about all the things. We have to push the boundaries and discover new possibilities. Now, 99 out of 100 times, they're going to fall flat. But that one out of 100 times, we get transformative things like modern web app frameworks, NFC, Bluetooth. Sometimes it's actually hard to see in the moment the bullshit versus the real actual value but patience is the key the media hype clickbait machine incentivizes grifters and that's a sad state but you just have to ignore them society has always had this problem the snake oil salesman of the 1890s or the tulip speculation crash of 1637 capitalism can incentivize innovation but leaves the door cracked to grifters looking to scam a quick buck my job is to look through the hype and see what actionable kernels of value i can leverage a good example he says Blockchain as a technology is being used to power technology used by title companies, a public record of ownership and title transfer for the state's large assets and real estate. Similarly, the import-export documents for some international shipping companies are now seeing similar applications using the blockchain. That seems like a pretty reasonable take on actual value coming out of this. That seems a pretty reasonable use case, right? Like, I don't think we've ever said the blockchain as a technology or concept was bad. I think what's bad is doing things you can already do and slapping the hashtag Web3 on it. And claiming that you're going to topple the tech giants that own the market now is just a little bit of a fool's errand. I mean, we'd love to see it, but not going to happen. Never. Uh, We warned you about that about 10 years ago. I'm wondering, though, you think maybe the mad botter might consider getting paid in Miami coin? Have you seen this? This is near your neck of the woods. Isn't that just cocaine? <laughs> I mean, I've been to Miami. I'm pretty sure it's cocaine. You are quick sometimes, I have to say. No, this is a real thing. It's been around for about four months now or so, five months, maybe more. Miami has launched the Miami coin. It's worth about $30 million right now. You mine it, and then you keep 70% of the revenue, give the rest to the city. The city uses that to pay for certain city initiatives. And... Austin wants to have an Austin coin. New York is thinking about having a New York coin. Think about this. And and for listeners out there, think about this for a moment. How does this make you feel if your local nearest large city had a cryptocurrency that you could buy and trade and sell and that they use the revenue from that to pay for certain things where taxes didn't close the gap? I just hope you're ready to reorganize your entire business around this. Miami not only claims that you can pay your taxes in Bitcoin, They claim that the mayor and several city staff are getting paid in Bitcoin and that city citizens will get a Bitcoin dividend from their profits. (sighs) Can you picture a world where almost every major city has its own cryptocurrency and now you have to figure out how to sell a product like this is just going to be a whole new cluster. So I, I have two initial reactions. What a nice PR stunt for Miami. Well done, guys. But. This is just a bad idea, right? This is the reason, like, every state, you know, used to have their own currency here, 
member of the Oracle's Confederation. <laughs> that's exactly where I was going with this. Yep, it feels like we're going backwards in time. They figured out that that's kind of stupid. <laughs> so there was a federal currency, and we call that the dollar. Imagine the possibility for different kinds of corruption when these different cities have different implementations and policies and rules around their currency. It's going to be wild. Couldn't you like devalue a rival city's coin? Like, so this is inside Florida baseball. But Orlando, Miami, and to a lesser extent, Tampa, although Tampa doesn't feel to a lesser extent, but they are, um, are in this like big fight to become the tech hub for Florida. Which is probably why Miami's doing this, by the way. Yep. Wouldn't it be in the mayor of Tampa's interest or the mayor of Orlando's interest to just totally do whatever they can to devalue Miami coin and just screw the city of Miami? Wouldn't it be like in any foreign power's interest to go after like major U.S. cities coins? And then the other thing that will happen is these currencies will shoot up in value. The Miami coin's gone up like $10 million every month. So these coins will shoot up in value. The cities will use these high values to purchase Bitcoin. And then as they begin selling their currency to buy Bitcoin, the currency will begin to drop because there will become more supply on the market and the currencies will just do this over and over again. They'll go up. The cities will buy Bitcoin with that currency. That's where they'll actually stash it. And then the currencies will drop and it'll happen over and over and over again. It'll be a constant pump and dump scheme that basically raises the Bitcoin price artificially. It's not good for crypto in general, I suspect. So this is like my, my constant thing with all this crap, right? The blockchain is amazing. I think there's a lot of innovation that's going to happen there. Fantastic. Miami does not need a coin, right? We need to really start talking about blockchain as blockchain. I mean, I think I've made this super clear. I am not a crypto optimist. I, I think. <laughs> oh, really? We were there, right? We were there when all this started and it was like, what are you buying? Drugs and hookers. I mean, it's where it's, it's come on. Yeah. I always kind of feel like, I mean, you got to keep in perspective, like cash is probably used for that a hundred times over. <laughs> sure. And like, I can't say that I haven't bought some Dogecoin and then, you know, sold it at a, a slight profit. It's fun. But I only do that once a year on Guy Fox Day. <laughs> That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. I think, you know, there is some fundamentals there. People find valuable, obviously, a shared ledger that's cryptographically verifiable. That's pretty beneficial, right? A decentralized way to send money from person to person. If I could send every contractor of JB cash directly and not go through like some sort of intermediary bank or PayPal or service, I absolutely would. Why wouldn't I want to be able to pay everyone and anything directly? Of course I wouldn't. I'd love to be able to do that online. So have you heard of the IRS? Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Right. And that's an area that's interesting. You know, it seems like they're treating Bitcoin and things like that as an asset, not so much as a currency. So when you cash it out, that's when you have to pay your taxes. Capital gains tax on Bitcoin. I love it. Yep. On to some more productivity follow up. We got a bunch. and I just got a couple in here we could fit. Longtime listener Remy wrote in and said, Hi, Mike and Chris. On Thursday local time, I got the new episode of Coda Radio. So I'm a little behind, but I want to give you a productivity hack while I could. I recently upgraded my macro pads, special small keyboards with rearrangeable keycaps. And then he has small pieces of paper with legends under them instead of generic keycaps. And we'll have a link because he has some photos in his blog post, and it's awesome. So we printed out these little squares, transparent keycaps. He puts little squares under there. And he says it makes an enormous difference in debugging C++. With GDB remotely, uh, <laughs> I just read this part. He has it connected remotely to a coffee machine so he can kick off also that. 
coffee machine. I mean, if you're going to go through the hassle of having custom buns, obviously one of them has to brew coffee. Yeah, but I had I just had to share this uh, one from Remy because uh, one, it's it's just great to hear from him. But two, the blog post that he linked with it is really rad because you see you see kind of what he's done with it. The buttons are backlit. And then he's printed these little squares with different colors and different words on it. And he just hits that and executes the macro. And it's kind of like a more analog version of the Elgato Steam Deck. Mm. And uh, there's something about that I really love. I got to get one of those because, you know, getting up to brew tea is just not civilized. I know. No, it's like an animal. Actually, Lily wrote in just some really, really straightforward, simple productivity advice. First and foremost, use a consistent note system and task management system. Personally, I've been using a bullet journal since 2019. The consistency is part of it. A bullet journal is a lot of work, in my opinion. But um, I've kind of landed on using things for like my personal quick tasks, like um, things I got to do for Christmas. I use things on iOS. And then for my work stuff, my work projects, I've taken to using Todoist because it supports sharing. It has a really, really light kind of... uh, Canboard kind of uh, project thing you can also share. And it has more management with just general group stuff. And the nice thing about Todoist is there's a bajillion integrations with tons of different things. So it's easy to get to do's in there and out and stuff like that. So I've landed on Todoist for my work stuff and things for my personal stuff. I think things is the best design to do app on iOS. Longtime listener Hudson wrote in saying that the Kensis Advantage 2 keyboard made a quote, huge difference in the health of their hands and wrists. Mm. This is a monster. We've talked about it once before on the show. Yes. It looks like something out of Star Trek, Hudson says, and he's right. It's $350, and it's really just this different take on a keyboard. More in, it's better. It's just better for the way our hands are actually built, but it's a change. And that's a big step for me. I have found going with the ergonomic split keyboards that have the little feet so they can get positioned right are a nice intermediary step that, you know, probably 100 $100 less, or getting a really nice mechanical keyboard that doesn't bottom out when you press hard. And if you type hard, it gives you kind of a good response. That kind of stuff helps. And then changing it up can help too. Now, we recorded early last week and we talked about uh, Drew DeVault's complaints around Python. And we didn't really zero in on quite what Drew was worried about. Not editor Drew, but uh, ranty Drew on the internet. And Will thinks he's nailed. He says, the rant about Python packaging is. Really kind of hard to suss out, but reading through the lines, I think he spent too much time ranting about modern software development in general, and that's why it was, well, I don't know, PIP works for me and stuff like that. Mm. He says what he's particularly upset about is that Python leadership has so far taken a very hands-off approach to its packaging ecosystem. Core Python has historically had some packaging tools that are old, depreciated, and marked for removal in 3.12. Most projects use Setup Tools, which is an independent project, up until the last few years. Now, Setup Tools has become the de facto standard. Reading through all of this, it's kind of easy to understand how some things get a little complicated. And he thinks this is what Drew was really kind of complaining about, because Drew's looking at it from a perspective of wanting to be able to package the stuff in a Linux distro. You know, something else that uh, we haven't really touched on, but Will brings back up, is the uh, situation where all the Rust moderators resigned. He says, I interpret what happened there as the mod team resigned as a move of last resort after a back and forth with the Rust core team. We haven't really heard much. I I haven't seen anything else on this. No, there was a super vague statement by the core team about how they're 
dedicated to like working with, you know, the different sub teams or something. It was really light. I don't know. He says there was some serious shade thrown by the outgoing mods. Quote, we recommend that the broader Rust community and the future mod team exercise extreme skepticism of any statements by the core team claiming to illuminate the situation. He says that's some serious shade to throw without any other context. <laughs> I think you're right, Will. Wow. That was something. Yeah, and it's just kind of gone nowhere. Just kind of gone nowhere. All right, last one. And I think we're done with the productivity ones for a while. But see, what happened is, is people are just kind of catching up. They're like a week or two behind. Oh, boy. So Absolute Zero had a really great one. And it's a whole system about writing things down before you go to sleep and, and labeling your tabs with an extension. And what I want to do is I want to link it in the show notes because it's just probably too long. It's, it's like a, uh, let me see. It's like a seven-step system. Jeez. Yeah, I know. But he says you get to your creative sweet spot a lot faster following his system. I kind of like the idea. And if we were doing the productivity episode today, I would probably read through it and talk about it. But I wanted to get link it in the show notes just so that all of you out there, you know, could go get it and, you know, follow Mike's system. People wrote in wondering if you have a system you follow, like a daily regime. Yeah. So longtime listeners. Now I've been a little sloppy with it and I actually have to get back into it. But, uh, well, no, I used to talk a lot about the Pomodoro technique. It's uh, like 25 minutes on, five minutes off for coding. And that's my basic dev kind of productivity hack. Uh, and that means, you know, close Twitter, close your email. Uh, I tend to mute Slack. And uh, I just want to, just as a side note, muting Slack is a power move. So I'm just going to put it out there. Double side, we got an email that said, if you're getting too many notifications and you got noise like family members around you, use the sound canceling headphones, but don't connect them to your machine that has the notifications like your laptop. Oh, it's so good. Right. That's the small part I, I never do. And I'm going to totally do now. Right. Like use use like an iPad or your phone or whatever to play whatever music and not the device. Right. It's like totally D&D out or whatever. Yeah, that's that's really good. Uh, the other thing I do is I buy those little, they're, they're called field notes. They're like love field notes. Yeah. So I like the, uh, the grid ones. Cause I tend to just like sketch either sketch out designs or like database designs, UML, all that kind of good stuff. And I don't use them as like some archive of everything, you know, for the end of time. It's kind of, if I'm doing something or on the phone with somebody, I need to remember something. I just write it down. It's weird. I, th I think they have a little stupid catchphrase. I'm writing it down to remember it now, not later, which is exactly how I use them. Same. I have one right here. And every now and then, like, if something comes up during a show or you suggest something or whatever, I'll write it down. And if I write it down, just that function, I am probably 80% more likely to remember it. And if I don't write it down, I'm probably 100% going to forget it. <laughs> And I just use it for temporary stuff. Right. When I first started using paper notes, I thought I needed to put everything down and I felt bad for not doing it. And then I realized, no, there are a specific kind of note and information that's that's ephemeral and is better captured when writing. And I, I use it for that all the time, too. I like it. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Linode's how I've hosted everything for the last couple of years. In fact, I've got a massive project I'm working on there right now that I'll tell you more about. But something I started doing before I launched this new project is I switched over to creating a flat mesh VPN between all of my Linodes. I use the open source project called Nebula to create essentially a flat network backhaul between the Linodes that we have in different data centers. They've got 11 data centers around the world. 
And Linode is their own ISP, so their interconnects are screaming fast. So there's a unique opportunity here to kind of create a super fast flat network between my machines. But the project I'm working on, I started building it here in the studio on a Raspberry Pi compute module. And so I added the Nebula VPN to that compute module, and now it's part of that same flat network as all of my Linodes. But it's actually even better than that, because when you're creating a Linode machine, you can add your SSH key right there at that point in time. When the machine's done, you just log in. It's so great. So I've done that. And I have a master control SSH key that I've put on the Linodes that we've deployed for, for about at least a year now. So over time, I'm kind of going with best practices and I'm shutting down internet SSH access to my machines and only allowing it from the Nebula VPN. Then I have a master control Linode that I log into that's part of that Nebula VPN or my Raspberry Pi, which is part of that Nebula VPN, or I could add any machine really. And I can get access to these machines safely and securely. And Linode actually takes steps and efforts to make sure that their machines are VPN friendly. So if you'd like to set it up as a VPN endpoint yourself or use a mesh VPN like I am, it's very accessible and they work hard to make sure that's possible. But what's really kind of great about Linode is they have that performance to price ratio. They're 30 to 50% cheaper than the major hypervisors out there that want to lock you into their crazy platforms. And they're constantly investing in their platform. They've been doing this for 18 years and they've stepped it up over the last five years. I mean, it's like they just put the pedal to the metal and they've never let off. They've recently been rolling out super fast PCIe MVME storage. Of course, they've got the latest and greatest AMD Epic processors for the data center that are on their highest CPU end machines. They've got 40 gigabit connections coming into those networked machines. It's just like on and on and on. And then on top of all of that, they've got great services you can layer in there that take it to the next level, like object storage and cloud firewalls, and a powerful DNS manager, Kubernetes support, VLAN support. I mean, it just is such a package. And then to top it all off, they're supporting a big part of our community. Not just in the media space, but some of my favorite open source projects are supported by Linode. And some of my favorite events have been supported by Linode. They understand that kind of investing in that ecosystem pays dividends long term, even if they can't do a pro and con, and maybe they can't necessarily like hit a key performance indicator by doing it. They know long-term it serves them because they've been part of this community. So go try it for real. Go try it for yourself and support the show. Linode.com slash coder. That's Linode.com slash coder. Get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account and support the show. Linode.com slash coder. There's a story going around today that we have to talk about on the show. First of all, I really can connect with this because I have been in some surprise meetings where everyone in the meeting got fired. But today it came out that the CEO of Better.com fired 900 employees at once over a Zoom meeting. It's brutal. Somebody posted the video online and I grabbed just like 10 seconds of it. But the whole thing you might want to go watch if you really like the cringe. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. Just good morning and thanks for joining us on the call today. Hey, look, uh, I'm real sorry. This has been hard. Hardest thing I've had to do for the second time in a row because apparently he's done this at a previous company too. The 43-year-old CEO has. But quote, the market has changed and uh, you know we got to do what we got to do to fulfill our mission. So 900 of you are gone. Wait, 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 wait. 900 employees in one shot? Yeah, all over Zoom. Some of the American employees will get some severance and stuff like that. Some of them. 
not going to get like a package. So they're going to get taken care of for a little bit. But what a wild thing, huh? And man, have I have been in this spot before where I was told that no one had been laid off in 25 years at this company. You'll always have a job here. And then I got called into a meeting one day and told that everyone in our department was being laid off and being replaced by contractors. It's a family until it isn't all of a sudden. What do these people do? Better.com. Actually, let's go take a look. I have never, maybe somehow they've had to lay people off. With a domain like that, you'd think they'd be making money. But Better.com, oh, are they down right now? They, they might be down right now. Oh, they're backed by SoftBank. Uh-oh. Also, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's some East Coast, West Coast bias here because the headline is not Better.com CEO. No, no. The headline is New York CEO fires 900 employees on Zoom call. Because, you know, those East Coasters are such jerks. I was going to say, an enlightened California CEO who's been <laughs> meditating <laughs> for six hours would never just, like, can a bunch of people. Nah. <laughs> I know, I saw that, and I thought, oh, man, there's some serious bias there. Okay, so Better.com, the right mortgage could save you thousands. So it's like some sort of mortgage grifting business, it looks like. And they're backed by SoftBank, thus explaining how they afford the domain Better.com. Got it. Yeah, they're doing stuff with mortgages. It's not a bubble, kids. It's Isn't that something? And, you know, it's not like it's super easy on the freelancer side either. So I, if you allow, a little behind, little behind the scenes, I am working on a new Linux show. <gasps> but what happened to the M1 Power Hour? <laughs> That's such a great name. <laughs> we should do it just because of the name. But, you know, like you have to ask yourself as a, like a small shop, like, what are my core competencies? Like, where can I actually add value? And for me, like, and also I have to ask the question, what do I enjoy doing? Because if I don't enjoy doing it, I'll burn out after a while because, you know, a new show is a big commitment. It's something you're doing over and over and over again, potentially for as long as possible, you know, as close to indefinite as you can achieve. That's the goal. Like your goal is to create work for yourself that never ends. Right. So (laughs) you better like it. (laughs) That's been really hard for me because I've had this really clear idea. Then I chicken out and I kind of think, well, maybe I should go a different direction. I've been chewing on this and I'll link to a blog post at seth.blog and I like it a lot. It's called The Freelancer's Dilemma. Uh, and it's, he says, engaging the marketplace requires creating value for people who have a choice and deciding what you offer your, your customers is your choice. It begins by being clear about what you own and what you're good at, and what gives you satisfaction. So I've been thinking about that recently. I'm hoping to have it ready for the new year. We shall see. I don't know because it involves moving a few other things around too to accommodate for this. But it's such a saturated market, right? But I feel like I've got something new in me that I want to do. But I can't tell if it's just, you know, I want to scratch an itch or if I really feel like there's a place for it in the market. It's kind of one of those like, you know, if you, if you really mess it up, there's not a lot of room for failure. So the consequences are pretty significant. Maybe not irreparable, in large part because we have members, but still significant. It's possible I'll be wrapping up another show to make room for it. You know, like that's a big decision too that has to be made. All of that's been on my mind recently. There's not a clear strategy available to me. There's not really anybody in this niche that I could emulate and there's not really any kind of like guide to follow. I just kind of have to decide and execute and hope for the best. 
and then pivot if it fails. Can I pitch a, con- a concept? Go for it. We take famous like Apple World podcasters and we just like sit them down with Pop OS. Oh man. Anything but KDE. KDE is a little too stable. Something GNOME based. Oh, they'd find they'd find issues with Plasma for sure. Oh, okay. Well, just like I, I want like a Linus Tech Tips, like destroy your desktop environment in the first five minutes. Oof. Yeah, man, that's been rough to watch. I have to be honest. Yeah, I did. I just saw the most recent one. So, so another Linux show. No, you. So you're telling me you're not bringing Stow back for me? Just not happening. <laughs> No, unfortunately, not unless they turn that game around. I'll tell you what. Oof. As the editor-in-chief of the network, I could do anything I want, right? I could I could launch Stowe again. So I've been tempted. You know, I've been tempted not to launch Stowe, but I've been tempted to do something that's kind of a new genre, a new area of coverage. But the reality of that is, is that we have so much momentum built up around Linux and open source software and credibility and and resources, right? So Yeah, for sure. Kind of the, there's a there's a nice network effect of if I build up another Linux show and I spend my time doing something for that show, like learning something or talking to somebody, that's knowledge that becomes applicable to the other Linux shows as well. So it's sort of like a network effect of even though I'm working on multiple shows, a rising tide sort of thing for knowledge and, and network connections and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of advantages in that regard as well. It's probably an area that you know I also have the most history with. You know, I've been covering Linux stuff for almost 13, 14 years. Yeah, and you have the people, right? If you ever need like to slot in a guest host or something, you have enough Linux gurus. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. But th- so it's not always so easy on the, yeah, you know, I'm not going to necessarily get fired tomorrow, but I could make one misstep, one miscalculation and essentially lead to my own firing. <laughs> so it's not always easy. Like canceling snow. Yeah, exactly. Or canceling Linux Action Show. I'm still hearing about that all the time. <laughs> I got an email this morning. Yeah, but come on. And Linux Action News and Linux. I would actually argue Linux Unplugged is, um, but I don't, you know, you know what? Let me bait the trolls. Linux Unplugged is a better version of Linux Action Show. Oh, Linux Unplugged, you know, it was if you were going to build, I think if you were going to build last today, you would probably just build that show, really. So you're probably right. It would just be Linux Unplugged. You would never do last the way you did it. You know, and we're going back into what, like the 2010s now? 2006 is, I think, when the show started. Was it really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then video, I think, was 2008 is when we got video. Uh, see, I, I started watching it when it was on video. Yeah, you would never do that again. Well, maybe you would do video again. I don't know, but never that format. I don't, I don't think, because podcasting is like so mature now. It was a product of that era, you know? Yeah. And it was closer to the 90s, so it was a little more acceptable. Like, we were really cheeky and in on, like, the theme music invoking 90s Sonic the Hedgehog vibes, right? It was... Tongue in cheek, but now it would just sound extremely antiquated. Well, and so this new show, this is a Luminary exclusive or Spotify exclusive or <laughs> it's you and Joe Rogan, right? It's going to be a crypto exclusive network oh, show. Oh, Jesus Christ. You have to give your wallet, you know, you have to get on the blockchain to get it. Yeah. You just have to invest in a little pod coin. And then, uh... <laughs> you know what? I'm about to NFT the Jar Jar sound light. I'm just saying. <laughs> Jupiter.party. You have been asking for it, and I have finally gotten it together. It's a membership for the entire network. And for the cost of just two memberships, you get access to everything. Currently, that's four shows. But when that grows, you automatically get access to that as well. And when you're checking out, if you use the promo code THESIGNAL, you'll get $2 off for a year. So right now, it's a limited time to sign up and support the entire network and get access to the ad-free version of every show. 
to get access to the post show of self-hosted and of course to get the full live version which has tons of extra content of linux unplugged all of them fully produced and ready to go in a feed for you and you can support the entire network for just the cost of two memberships so to get access and sign up right now or to give it as a gift because we've added gift options too just go to jupiter.party and then use the promo code the signal and get yourself two dollars off for a year jupiter.party your membership makes a difference we're just a small independent team doing our absolute best to make content for you and you can help make that a reality and keep us going jupiter.party promo code the signal so apple has a plan to crack the business market and i i'm actually buying this one so Apple is beginning through partners to offer a $30 a month M1 plan. You can lease an M1 Mac for 30 bucks a month. And Apple is also launching a business essentials program that we talked about briefly on here that gives you like centralized management tools and free backup storage for Macs, sort of a similar management system to the iPhone, although I would suspect probably not as complete. And then additionally, on top of that, Amazon has announced that you can now get Amazon EC2 M1 Mac instances. You got to give them 24 hours a heads up, though, because they're racking physical Mac minis at AWS. There's a poor guy named John just racking up M1s. But, you know, uh, I actually think Apple is aiming at the small business market, not the big enterprise market, but like the 100, 200 size market. And you know what? I really think the sign was of that. And I'm. I'm going to sound like I'm joking. I think it was adding the HDMI port back. The only reason really for an HDMI port that isn't of higher res capable signal. Projectors. Projectors. Yeah, I've been in many boring meetings where I've had to dongle up to a projector. It's a a meme at this point. It's a meme that Apple wants to kill. And it's something that that I think, I think the dongle thing was felt the hardest by offices that had to, you know, connect to different peripherals or different projectors and whatnot, or conferences and tech events. That's where the dongle stuff really got people just like either in some situation where they couldn't connect or, you know, just a bad taste in their mouth. I just want to say right before COVID, like I have many times in an airport been the customer of those stupid Best Buy vending machines that will basically sell you a bunch of dongles for your Apple devices that should have more ports. I see people lined. I used to, I don't go there anymore, but I used to see people lined up there all the time, uh, getting themselves a dongle or a pair of headphones or something like that. And Bluetooth headphones, because of course they can't wire their headphones and they're going, they're about to get on a plane. And that's the times when it really sucks the most is those sort of situations. But, uh, you think they got a shot here? You know, so you picture your hundred person company, 200 person company, $30 a month for an M1. And also you can buy into this Apple business essentials program where they'll provide support and centralized management. Think this is going to do it? I kind of see them separately, right? The Apple business essential support really, really sucks to be an MDM company now. Yeah. Because I don't see a reason unless you have some weird cross-platform needs uh, why you wouldn't just issue iPhones and iPads. And I just, just like a big part of my business used to be, and I'm sure still is for people who are more iOS focused, is writing enterprise software for tablets, right? For iPads, that that seems huge to me, the business essentials thing. Uh, the hardware thing, you know, the problem with Mac OS as a business OS, I think for a lot of like those 100 employee companies, 
is if you get a new device every year, do you also now get the new version of Mac OS? And I think for a lot of IT departments, that's maybe not something they want. Yeah, I think if you're going to go the Mac route, you kind of have to be committed to at least upgrading every other OS release. Yeah, but are they going to force you to, right? So is this, is this like the iPhone program where it's, you know, N dollars a month, and when the new one comes out, you just automatically get it? Because I could see that being like the IT, you know, department's headache every year. Or is it optional? Yeah, I didn't read the specifics. It might be every two years, and then okay. it's optional if you want to replace it. But yeah, yes, I follow what you're saying there. That would be a maintenance problem. Maintenance problem. And I don't think a lot of enterprises anymore have like custom line of business macOS software. I know we're going to get emails from folks who do, but so yeah, I mean, Microsoft does this too, right? They do Surface, um, not Pro, whatever they call it. They have a plan just like this. Right. What about for your business? Instead of dropping two grand on an M1, 30 bucks a month until you don't use it anymore and then you send it back. Okay, so what if a martini gets poured into it? Well, I wonder, huh? What is they, that? Because that, they have to have some accommodations. There's going to be damage to these things. Yeah, there's going to be. I bet it comes with Apple Care Plus, and then you can buy the additional coverage. Ah, uh, yeah, of course. So then, if it's covered by Apple Care, you're good. And if Apple Care says screw off, you're probably just you. You you bought the machine. <laughs> so I I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a sweetheart deal for a business of my size because it's just not that much money. Yeah, that's what I was surprised by, is it seems cheap for Apple. Yeah, but th- maybe this doesn't make sense. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you have to buy, like, 50 or 60 units to get this plan. Ah, uh, yeah, sure. I, I really doubt I could get, like, eight, you know, you know, spend $240 a month and just everybody gets a new M1 all the time. That seems crazy to me. Well, maybe one way you could manage all those new Macs is a bunch of folks sent into the show, friend of the show, Jeff Gerling's, Ansible mm. GitHub page for managing his software setup. He's got a playbook for setting everything up on his Mac. And he just, when he gets a new Mac, he rolls this out. He says it automates the software on his Mac for software and web development. Some things are difficult to automate, so I still have to do a few manual steps, but it's all documented here, what, what, it, what is, you know, whatever might be the exception. And I think he gets things up and going and like, 15, 20 minutes on a brand. He goes from brand new Mac to ready for full development in about 15, 20 minutes. That's epic. Yeah. It makes me kind of think, because I know I also should learn Ansible for the server stuff. I know. I want to actually, I want to come back to that real quick. I got to be honest. I didn't even realize you could do anything on a Mac with Ansible. I didn't know it was compatible with Ansible. I assumed it was not. So that's an area I need to learn a lot more about. But I got a confession to make that I realized I should have been telling you on the show. Uh Uh-oh. Red Hat announced that CentOS was transitioning from a standard release that follows the Red Hat model to a continuous delivery of minor versions called CentOS Stream. Ugh, okay. It's not as bad as they made it sound. What it really means is instead of waiting for like Red Hat 9.1 and 9.3 and 9.5, you just get those little intermediary updates as after they've been QA tested and ready to go. That's really, that's the main difference. Because then they build Red Hat 9.1 or 9.2 from that work. So it's actually, it's not bad, but Stream 8 came out. That's when they, when they announced it during the CentOS 8 lifetime. So CentOS Stream came out, and it was where they were kind of proving things out. I just talked to Carl George in Linux Action News this Sunday about this. It was like, okay, prove the theory works while you already have a distro that's been built the traditional way. Now convert that in real time to Stream. 
So I thought I'm going to avoid that and wait for stream nine, which just came out and is born since this whole stream idea came around. It was created as a stream first distro. It's the whole, you know, from tooling on, it's all built for this. That seemed like the distro plus it's based on Fedora 34, which is a great release of Fedora. It includes GNOME 40 and it's a, so it makes stream nine essentially an LTS Fedora. Although it doesn't have all of the kernel components to make it a great desktop, it has everything you'd really need for you know a development job. So Stream 9, is a, it, it just seemed like this, oh, this is going to be this moment, and I was going to migrate all of my studio machines over to Stream 9. I'd been waiting since the announcement back in December. And then it came around, and I really didn't find myself all that excited. I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me to download it. And here I had been waiting for 11 months for this. And then when it finally arrived, it didn't even dawn on me to download it because I was just so disinterested now. Do you know, can you guess what it is that caught my attention, which has taken my heart and has made my eye drift from CentOS? Is it Sousa? It is. Yeah. <laughs> I am 100% serious. Yes. I am really, really liking Tumbleweed as a server OS. Mm-hmm. Wait, Tumbleweed? Oh, you, you're so brave. You're so courageous on the server. I'm like, no, give me the LTS. Well, I mean, you know, we're a team of Linux guys, right? So, like, when things break, we usually have it fixed in, like, 15 minutes, if they break. <laughs> so, yeah, they're so late. You hear the condescension? Yeah. No, it's, it's really because I get content out of it. If I was just, like, hosting services for customers, I would probably go more with Leap. I like that they have the option, though. But because for us, it pays to be on the cutting edge. We basically do it so that way the listeners don't have to. Tumbleweed has been a surprise. One of the big shifts that I made this go is I'm not using it as a desktop, which I've always found very frustrating, but also I'm just not using Yast that much. I really don't. Where I always really hit my head against the wall with SUSE is when I am using Yast to manage software. And I, I, I'm glad it's there for some people, but this time around, I went and got the zipper cheat sheet and I've kept that around. And I'm doing all of my software management using Zipper. It's a great example of how you can build a nice UI around a command line tool that displays information that is very easy to read for the end user. And it's easy to make decisions and weigh the pros and cons and decide what actions I should take. And that's, in a nutshell, what I'm really liking about SUSE is it feels like they've engineered a little bit extra on top of tools that you have to use on a frequent basis to manage your box, where Ubuntu and Arch by design, but Ubuntu specifically, it doesn't really feel like Canonical's adding value to that layer of tooling. They do have tools that are valuable. Don't get me wrong. Like they've built tooling around ZFS snapshots. They have some great tooling around firing off some quick VMs and containers and all of that. They have some good tooling, but like apt itself, that's not, that's not their domain. That's Debian's. Debian isn't changing anything, right? So it's not really going to change ever in Ubuntu until Debian does something. Where SUSE, well, they are their own upstream. And if they want their package manager to be better and give the user more information, they can just directly improve the tooling. And I think over time, that's begun to add up. And so there's nice little areas where it's like, hey, man, you know, you just issued this command. But on Tumbleweed, for safety purposes and for recovery purposes, you probably want to use this command. But, it, you know, 
your decision. And I, I really appreciate that kind of stuff. And it's displayed in a way where it stands out. So it draws your attention so you don't miss the information. And there's a lot of just nice things in that regard. And I have to give credit where credit is due. They were first to ButterFS at massive, massive deployment scale. And I think it was a little early when they chose to do it. But Fedora just got around to it, you know, three releases ago or so. And it's in a great state right now. And the people out there who say ButterFS is horrible, well, I think they should take another look. I grant you, for my large data sets, I still use ZFS. But for my laptop hard drive or a boot SSD or a Raspberry Pi SD card or SSD, I'm using ButterFS everywhere now. And SUSE has been building on that for so long that they have fantastic snapshot tooling built into all of it. And they're really taking advantage of the ButterFS file system in a way that some distros are just finally getting around to. I'm in shock. I mean, I... Part of what really, what I really like and appreciate, their Arch version is really solid. I have it running on a Raspberry Pi Compute Module 4 upstairs. Mm. I just booted that thing off a USB stick and installed it to the EMMC like it was a hard drive on a regular Intel x86 PC. You know, I just booted off the USB stick, went through a regular install, chose the EMMC as the target disk, it auto-partitioned and installed it. You know, none of this like flash an image and boot into like a pre-installed, pre-configured environment that already has a login that always feels cheap on ARM devices. Right. It was really nice. And so I can run it on my ARM VMs in parallels on the new MacBook, and I can run it on the Compute Module 4, and I'm going to be running it on the new Jupyter Broadcasting local server. And I think... What I'm thinking about doing is learning Ansible because I've got some people like Wes who can help me and eventually just repaving the, the, the Linode JB infrastructure, which is a mix of CentOS and Ubuntu and redeploy it all using Ansible on SUSE, potentially, if it goes well. The next test will be a local server. And if our local server turns out, I like it with Tumbleweed, then I think that'll be stage, stage three will be deployed on our Linode servers and nuke and pave all of them and redeploy on, on some, maybe Tumbleweed, but maybe Leap using Ansible. Probably Leap for our cloud servers. So you were right. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. <laughs> the lizard people have yet another convert. Congratulations. When we restarted the show, you were you held strong to it, and I teased you for it. You know, and I admit it does go off the rails when I start using Yast, but if I stay out of Yast, I'm really liking it. And uh, Yeah, I basically used it. So. Yeah, I think you were right That's good there. good stuff. It is. All right. Well, we, we got to keep an eye on this, your, your ongoing uh, reptilian adventures. I'll let you know how it goes in lizard land. It may go about, if it goes poorly, I'll report back, but hopefully it doesn't. Thank you to our Coder QA members out there who joined early and made this show possible. Thank you so much for being a member. The quarterly is out, and uh, there will be another one next quarter, and you can become a member for the show at CoderQA.co. We appreciate you very much. Go find Mr. Dominic on Twitter at Dumanuku. His company is at the Mad Botter Inc. Anywhere else you want to send the folks? I'll go to Alice.dev if you've got some proprietary legacy data that you want converted into something useful. You got to go to Alice.dev. You got to go. You got to. You got to go. The podcast here is at Coda Radio Show. I'm thinking about changing out this outro. Now that Jack's out of Twitter, why am I even plugging it anymore? Nobody even uses Twitter. Go join the Matrix. There's a, there is a Coda Radio 
community on our Matrix server. Our Matrix server is colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. And it's, it's actually pretty nice. Go hang out there. There's a persistent chat on Matrix. Want to play around with Element? Now's your chance. Our server is colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. Links to what we talked about today are coder.show slash 443. Over there, you'll find our contact form. That's a huge part of the show. So please do participate with your feedback and subscribe over at coder.show slash subscribe. We'll see you right back here next Monday.